0: Massive thank you as always to our top-tier patrons Sarah Turner and Justin Harper. The podcast takes a considerable amount of work, so we really do appreciate everyone's contribution. You can support us too at patreon.com forward slash it's not just in your head. For as little as $3 you can get access to our Discord community where hosts Equoi Hero and myself host weekly live discussions. So Come join us. Please do rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. We're on Reddit, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you have any questions or comments about this episode or the podcast in general, then email it's not just in your head at gmail.com. And this week's random call out goes to patron James Hannah.
1: In the mental health field, too often we've made it seem as if it's just in your head just in your head
0: if the landlord can hijack
2: the rent by twenty percent. That impacts people's mental health. We can't
1: have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy.
3: Education is is a broad and evergreen topic. But one of the and and there are so many different directions you can go in discussing education. But one of the the first question and, and the initial question is going to be about, you know, some of the major issues that you've seen in the public education system as a teacher, especially pertaining to students prior to COVID and how COVID has really changed. And not changed um, some of those issues and priorities.
2: So, I've been teaching for 15 years in a variety of contexts. Um, started off in public school, taught and um, taught at uh, international private school for a long time. I've also taught teachers, um, and I'm back in public school now. I am a department have an online program. The concerns are multiple fold. And and the thing is, when you start with a big question like that, um, you have tendencies and then systemic overcorrections. So for example, when I started teaching, we were standardized testing 11th graders nine times per year, in addition to any tests they might take on their own to get into college. Um, The test was used to... Evaluate their current eleventh grade teachers, even though the test began in September in some cases, meaning that wow. uh, yeah uh, meaning yeah. that the teacher had no effect on the on the outcome
3: mm.
2: um, I left teaching public school education in the end of the great recession first time because a variety of reasons. One, I was about to be laid off. Two, I asked to do things that I cannot legally get into that were unethical in my first job involving um, forcing kids in situations that would make AYP stats better. For those of you who don't know what that is, that was the annual yearly progress requirement, which had had many, many um, weird sub-demographic things ostensibly designed to help Children of color, um, but were actually pretty highly punitive. Um, Was this in
3: in Utah or was this in Georgia? Okay.
2: So it's also hard to generalize about the American education system because it is extremely federalized. And I think the extent of that is often not understood by people talking about it in the news. While federal education policy was why they were like race to the top under Obama or No Child Left Behind. Under uh, George B. Bush. Um, itself, I mean, the ironies of all this is hilarious um, to get into the, the, the history of this. And no Child Left Behind was based off of a British Labor Party reform in the 1990s attempted in Texas that utterly failed by the time it was attempted in Texas. Um, nationalized. Then, as a response to that, the Common Core were developed by a consortium of mostly Republican governors as a concession to the Republican governors when he froze the annual yearly progress um, requirements of No Child Left Behind, which were eventually supposed to hit 100%, meaning that every school in the country would it be federally defunded? That was sort of the backdoor time bomb in No Child Left Behind. Obama froze that, adopted the Common Core and then his Waste to the Top policy, which also encouraged charterization even further. Uh, So the testing regime was frozen for a little while, but at this point when that freeze happens, you've already lost about 25 to 30% of the workforce from the layoffs during the Great Recession due to the cuts made to education But only to educational staffing at the teaching level. There's actually a counter trend that begins at this time. Uh, It really starts in about 2002, which the exponential expansion of administration and consulting firms, which were often federally required, just like you see in, in higher ed, actually, except that this is all hidden and it's totally hidden from public view. Uh, the stat that I like to point out is that in the last 15 years, the cost of educating a student on average across the country has almost tripled in some places, and it's definitely double on national average. The actual pay going to teachers, however, has has gone down as a percentage of that spending. Um, But 92% of all educational expenses are in staff. That meant that people weren't looking at what this was actually being spent on. So you had this exponential growth of administration staff and not at the site level, but at the school board level, Um, more and more compliance officers, more and more teacher trainers, et cetera. And I'll go into how COVID really exposed a lot of this later, but this has actually been a net um, energy suck um, and money suck in the education system that Similar, Follows similar patterns to what you see in healthcare and in higher ed. Um, I left in 2010 to work uh, at a university in South Korea and teach teachers. I had started my career as an adjunct professor, uh, probably one of the few people who initially went into education for the money. Um, <laughs> which, you know, a funny statement, yeah. but it does pay a lot better than being an adjunct professor. That's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's <is> true. <laughs> it pays like four times, actually, right. on average um but the hours are insane uh another thing that happened during this time period for me is uh i uh during the great recession my then ex-wife was laid off and i was working many extra jobs i was uh, back to being an adjunct professional on top of that etc and so forth and was pretty much constantly dealing with with debt um, so I left the country to be a mer- to be an educational mercenary <laughs> um, <laughs> and teach elites and uh, mm-hmm. assuage my conscience by teaching the very, very poor in the developing world out at, at, on the weekends. The situation, however, got worse in public education. So around 2012, they started noticing that even high-paying states were having trouble attracting enough teachers, and mm-hmm. states like California, the the education system had sort of collapsed during NCLB. Um, and, and, and California is still unique in how hostile it is for outsiders to be able to sit there. Um,
3: what do you mean by outsiders?
2: They do not recognize any state's licensure. Oh. Oh, so unless you're nationally certified, which is almost impossible to get, um, you can't just transfer to California. You have to go through the licensure process in California Um, for certain fields in particular. um, One of the biggest ones is social studies where there's not a lot of need uh, in staff even now. But the tests in California pretty much require you to go to a California school to be able to pass because what's on those tests are idiosyncratic.
3: Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I know that, you know, social services, like social work and counseling is like a state by state licensure. But I did not know that that was the case with teaching in counseling.
2: Yeah, teaching is a state by state licensure in every state in the country. It is legally a um, with the exception of things that fall under constitutional rulings like Brown, v. Board of Education and the Civil Rights mm-hmm. Act. Uh, And I can get into the ironies of the Civil Rights Act later. Uh, Education is totally state regulated. It is not. It is not actually a federal issue constitutionally as decided by the Supreme Court, except in so much as when it violates uh, certain groups' rights um, under disciplinary practices under strict scrutiny uh, to get into the legal thing about that. So there are a lot of trends happen, though. Uh, you see the rapid charterization of schools. Charter schools, uh, a lot of the stuff you hear from, from a lot of the Liberal State Teachers Union 10 years ago wasn't entirely true. Like they didn't accept SPED children. That's not true at all. Charter schools are under the same regulations for that. They're often what not- is, comp- What
3: is specific? SPED is special, special education, ed, right? Yes.
2: If I speak okay. in ed, you uh, just stop me. Um, we're okay. like the military and uh, healthcare and that we have our own. Uh, acronym system that no one else understands.
3: Right. And what, what does fall into the SPED category now?
2: Well, that's, that, again, regulated by the state. Um,
3: okay, so it's it changes by state. There's no, like, one standard for SPED. No, there,
2: there's not one standard for SPED, but there is one standard for SPED oh, wow. compliance under the IDEA legislation from 2001.
1: What's IDA?
2: A legislation to make SPED um, enforcement more inclusive and actually binding because states in the 80s, and I went through the system, I was a a special education student reading because I'm dyslexic and aphasic, which I ended up being a poet and speak like five languages. So, (laughs) you know, you can get past it, kids. But what they would do is throw all the... The students who had any kind of disability, whether it be severe, uh, severe, and profound uh, mental handicapped, um, which generally is defined as having an IQ less than say eighty, whether it is a learning disability, which is a on a general gestalt intelligence test, you have an area of weakness um, that so you might have an aggregate score of like between. 110 and 120 on your IQ, but there's this weird area that's showing up at like 80. That's how schools test it. You can also get special ed accommodations for a diagnosed learning disability from a doctor such as dyslexia, aphasia, anything that has a a set of presentable pathologies like you would in psychology. Um, Then there are 504 accommodations. This is a federal accommodation. But again, it's regulated by state law and 504s are for explicit health uh, impairments. But again, with mental health and learning disability, this gets really flossy. Now, 504s have kind of become a problem because you can effectively just buy them. Now, this is not something talked about, but a, a, a rich parent can go to a doctor and find something to get a 504 accommodation for.
3: What are 504 accommodations?
2: It depends. They're written by by a, a special ed team and a consultant of teacher's Uh, they are not supposed to change the the standards the students are adhered to but they can be used to do all kinds of things and they get you test accommodations and stuff the scandal if you guys remember about uh, five years ago six years ago there's a scandal about all these elite students buying their way into private schools by using um sat and act accommodations made for students right well how they were getting that was basically buying 504s or finding doctors who would find who would find kids with mental uh uh, capacities because then they could then use the 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 uh the accommodations to cheat which of course um i mean because i I don't mean like they were using the accommodations for cheating they were literally cheating during the accommodations because you're taken out of the testing environment Oh. Which is, of course, a nightmare for kids who actually need those accommodations, because how did the College Board respond to that? Well, by making them harder to get. Um, but we, we've we had a kind of arms race with this. One of the things that happened in the aughts, uh, to go back to the NCLB days, which is a lot of people consider one of the worst of education in, in the United States. Would you explain the initials? Yeah, NCLB is No Child Left Behind. Okay. Okay. a uh, so law passed. Uh, 2002, um, I, you know, people might remember it's where all the schools would like fire the administration and fire everybody in the school and rehire them all the time um, because they weren't making adequately learned progress. Well, what we've seen over time is the only thing now, now that the federal government's really concerned about is graduation rates and some things with test scores, but their state laws have conflicted with federal laws. My home state of Utah, for example, has been in like a 20-year lawsuit battle over whether or not it has to really mandate graduation tests because there is a push for parents' rights to not count. Now, get really cynical about some of these pushes because um, they've become politicized lately because they are often done in in democratically-run states under... Testing is not racially equal.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, they are removed in Republican-run states because testing is not uh, in line with parent choice. The, the exact effect of both policies is to remove any ability for people to gauge where students are at. Um, because, it, and, and this is not secret, On the assessments given for general literacy in fourth and eighth grade, um, for the first time since we had complete compulsory schooling in the United States in 1962, uh, which was when you can consider the public schooling um, initiative completed in the U.S., uh, so everybody gets free high school and everybody gets to go, and that. I don't think people realize how late that actually is 1972 is when you generally consider that full compliance with everybody having equal access to to secondary education is completed wow wow yes most people were able to go to high school if they were in developed areas but like rural areas black communities etc segregated schooling There was a lot of things that led to very low um, attendance um to to higher ed i mean and and not just higher ed but also secondary ed Mm -hmm. um uh, that but project was more or less completed by 1972 literacy rates in the united states have been pretty much stagnant from 1972 to 2015 really yeah i thought they'd gone down no they go down in 2015 the the issue that you have comparing prior to that is when you look at literacy tests even in say when the military they were only testing the high like fairly highly educated people they weren't testing the general population because they weren't in school
1: mm-hmm.
2: and if they didn't go into the military they were never given a test in the first place so we don't really have good stats for general literacy before the 70s which is also something people don't realize but you started seeing literacy rates declining in 2015. Mm-hmm. now when i say literacy rates Average, for example, average uh, competent literacy has actually gone down for the literate since, say, the beginning of the 20th century, but more people have been able to read. So it's hard to know. I mean, it's basically like, well, a lot more people are now reading at a functional level where they weren't reading at all before. And the people who were literate were a lot more literate. That's That reverse, you started seeing a reverse in 2015. No one really knows why, actually. Um, another thing that happened is in intelligence testing, since about, I think, the 1950s, there'd been something called the Flynn effect. The Flynn effect is in the in the developed world, every 15-year cohort of students who was given an IQ test saw a 5 to 10-point increase in average net aggregate iq which was actually a good response to say, like, uh, intelligence racialists who'd be like, well, that's ge- all genetic. I'm like, why is it going up every generation and a half? I mean, mm-hmm. every half a generation or so. Um, right. That stopped in 2001 in Britain, and I think stopped in 2010 in the United States. Now, there's a, a bunch of theories as to why it stopped. Um, uh, some people tie it to the fact that general nutrition has somewhat declined, uh, or at least stopped making gains. Mm -hmm. Um, Some attribute it to um, the decline in executive function that has come about with the influence of screens. Some attribute it, which by the way, it is true that the the refresh rate on screens is tied to executive function decline. For those who don't know, that is a common parlance. It's harder to self-regulate be self-disciplined the more you look at a refreshing blue screen. And that's not just true for your phone or the internet. It's also true for television. Um, and this has been a trend that's been kind of noted by educational psychologists um, for decades. But what they also were noting is that processing speed for your ability to, like, process uh, the written word had gone up. Um, what you'll notice... But all these effects, though, is so far, none of them have anything to do with what you actually learn in school. Um, And we don't know if the decline in literacy has to do with the schooling environment or the general environment altogether, because anything that's a stressor reduces relative IQ. So, and I know we can get into the racialization of IQ tests because that's real. That should not be discounted. But w- when we deal with aggregate numbers like this, they are measuring something, um, and we're seeing changes. Um, so in the early aughts, you did see f- some fi- some changes uh, between the gaps in, in US education. So uh, you saw a mild increase in literacy in, say, African-American classroom. You saw a little bit of an increase in literacy amongst Latino immigrants. Uh, that could actually honestly be in this latter case a generational cycle issue. Um, mm-hmm. So just more people around English as a home language are at least, uh, you know, are, are, are duly immersed in the home environment. So you saw you saw gains in the odds for that. Uh, some people actually the conservatives attributed that to the testing regime um, and, uh, during NCLB. That also has dropped. I've heard a lot of people bring up, you know, you would hear about like a factory model of education uh, stuff from, you know, that TED talk from 15 years ago from Kenneth Robinson. And uh, for those of you who are familiar with the educational uh, critic, John Taylor Gatto, he talks about this as well. um, That was always oversimplified. And what they were trying to replace it with was actually a consumer model of education. That was, attempted in public schools and it's been attempted in public schools many times the the issue that you have in meta-analysis uh is that there's no evidence that it does a damn thing (laughs) it doesn't really change likely outcomes it does change some student engagement um so for example students who go who get into kind of like progressive charter schools or uh, are they're in a progressive magnet program do tend to like their school better and tend to be more engaged, right. but there's no no evidence that aside from programs like KISS, which are drill and kill and burn out teachers and, and cannot work unless they do that, that there's any gains whatsoever.
0: Does um, um does consumer model of education mean thing? Is it like a, just a wide umbrella term? Does that mean things like, you know, the website Udemy, for example?
2: Yeah, I mean, it means everything from uh, school and class choice to uh, gamification of of course content to online content. Now, I, I work in an online program, and unfortunately, while uh, we did say I lived in Salt Lake City, I'm not going to tell you exactly where I work. <laughs> um, but um, the efficacy rate... For online education has always been shit. Um, we've known it's uh, it, it has an efficacy rate. So, a general pass rate, MOOCs have a general pass rate of about 10 to 20%. Uh, asynchronous coursework has a general pass rate of about 30 to 40%. And so 10 to
3: 20%, I, meaning 10 to 20% pass. Yeah, the
2: well, course. generally just completion at that. So, okay. okay. So, oh, wow. um, and, and, and this is not dealing with measures of learning, which I can get into. Uh, synchronous online education before COVID was getting up to a fifty to sixty percent pass rate. But the thing is, people don't really like synchronous online education. Um, it's it's actually less effective than in person education mm-hmm. because you have to model all the unspoken social cues that a teacher sets up, often the teacher not realizing they do it. It's learned skills that they don't even, uh, they're not even aware that they have had to pick up to survive in their their job, Um, which is part of the, part of why U.S. education has declined so rapidly as aside from a core of teachers who we are now losing, who came into the system uh, before the mid-2000s the average teacher tenure is three to five years. Now, I, I, I want to reiterate that the average teacher tenure, 50% of all teachers do not make it past three to five years. You do not start picking up that you use for three years. That's the average, you know, amount of time it takes to start unconsciously learning. You. And Unfortunately, pedagogical theory, pedagogical training, nothing actually tends to teach this other than being in the classroom. We have not figured out how to impart these, um, but we're learning a lot more about what they are because uh, even before COVID, there was a giant push, ironically, by conservatives who turned on uh, online education because of COVID politics
3: right because they wanted to replace i i remember that big push because you know then then one teacher could like teach a thousand students
2: right yeah the yeah. the problem with with uh blended uh our synchronous education or hybrid synchronous education which is what i do so some of it's asynchronous some of it's synchronous support is that the student to teacher ratio can only really go up about 10 more students and it'd be effective. Mm-hmm. So, say the, the now. I will say that there's a lot of studies that indicate the classroom size does not affect teacher efficacy very much. I have slight problems with that because what we've seen with the increase in classroom size is the decrease of direct instruction in writing and mm-hmm. reading because it takes too much time to do. Right. Now, what, one of the problems with these educational studies is when they are often do net stats, uh, they will do meta-analysis that assume all modalities of learning operate the same way, which they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, not, not neurologically, not socially. So, so, for example, how you learn math and how you learn English, uh, actually aren't totally the same. And right. there's always an attempt to generalize that one, because primary education has one teacher doing all of it. And two, uh, because, um, people don't want to admit that, that like the Gestalt assessments are not going to be particularly valid. Um, so, uh, all this is uh, the very long leading up to let's talk about what we actually saw in education. During the aughts, and particularly on the East Coast, uh, the social climate of schools got very, very bad. Um, most schools that I experienced in Georgia literally looked like prisons. I taught at an exurban school in Georgia for three years. We had razor wire around the school, ostensibly not to keep people in, but to keep people out. That was what, what it was. What do you mean
3: by that? To keep people out?
2: It was ostensibly about uh, security. The security push actually predates Combine. And this is unfortunately lost in uh, the way we talk about the security concerns of schools. Combine made the security concerns of schools no longer just for schools of color. Mm. Um,
3: Right, right. That was. Um,
2: yeah, um, I, I still, even with Uvalde and, and everything else will say that some of the panic about security in schools is a panic. I am not saying that we don't have a serious mass shooting problem in the United States, but you are still more likely to be hit by lightning twice, And that's that's hard to to. Understand. Um, it's also something that uh, I think is not spoken about because there isn't a good answer for it, including gun control. Um, right. Because, uh, and I, I'm not saying this to be to be controversial, <laughs> um, but one of the lowest periods of school shootings was actually a time period in which we did have gun clubs in schools. Right. We ha- so. Right. That's yeah, a
3: I, mean, I, I remember them in the eighties. Yeah, I think they were I think that a was thing like from the, last the year end,
2: the nineteen twenties to the nineteen eighties. There were still gun clubs in schools. Um, uh, the however, the the no tolerance stuff and all this, this came actually out of gang scares,
3: right? The zero tolerance, yeah. Um, the
2: and and,
3: and also the drug war,
2: but you yeah, know, yeah, you know, the, the, I know yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean. Oh, that's totally true. Um, pretty in, pr- in perspective, I think uh, until recently, the highest period of gun violence in schools was actually the late 1980s. And it was in general gang related, although even that threat was greatly overstated at the time.
1: Um, although we have and had 127 school shootings thus far this year and the year is only about half over.
2: You know, I, I was about to say, the last two years actually are we're back down to to eighty levels. One of the issues that I used to have with the way this this was reported um, is that they would start with Columbine in nineteen ninety nine and then go whatever year was, um, and they wouldn't actually report on the data from the eighties because it it because that data comes against a bunch of different narratives that make people uncomfortable. Um,
3: the well, I mean violence has been an evergreen thing in society. Right. So so yeah. Well yeah, America's a violent think? place. Yeah.
2: It is. Um, with the exception of Canada, the entire North American continent is. Um, I will I think uh we we do have to Look at gun violence in particular, because, for example, uh, high school can be pretty violent in, in Great Britain, but it's not fatal. Um, <laughs> and and that's a pretty significant yes. difference. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm not actually anti-gun control I want to bring this stuff up, but I do get somewhat frustrated with people uh, with both sides. I, I, You know, I currently live in a state and this is a true fact and this blows my mind. Um, where when I was in person, I could carry a gun on campus because I myself have a concealed carry permit, even though I don't uh, carry a weapon, I don't keep a weapon, but uh, I have one. And uh, I could have carried a gun on campus as a teacher legally in my job, and no one said no one say a word about it, but I cannot break up a fight. Now, it's a good thing. Uh, that I can't break up a fight. I used to be required to break up fights in Georgia, and we were just indemnified. We weren't properly trained in how to do it. And more than a little bit, kids got hurt. And so this is not me talking about the irony of how much I want to break up fights, um, but it is absurd to me that I can break up a fight. I can't break up a fight without proper training um without risk of losing my job um but you can but i can carry a gun and use it in lethal capacity for the defense of my students in utah never happened in utah um this has been a law for a while all that's happened so far is as a teacher shot herself in the foot in the Uh, bathroom but
0: uh i just want to add um in, in in the in the UK, obviously, different country, different culture, different relationship to guns. In in the late 90s, um, there was a school shooting in Scotland and the government did bring in gun control and it did ban handguns and it um, worked um, in the sense that there have been no mass shootings with handguns since. Now, shotguns and rifles... There's been some stuff, but just as a sort of just to throw it in there, um, just to call some shit, really. (laughs) really.
1: (laughs) It does make a difference. It does. I mean, Scotland is the United States has more murders than anyone else in the whole Western Hemisphere. But Scotland comes in second. That's not
2: actually remotely true. Well, which is um, the
1: next most violent then I mean that's in, what I've read.
2: In the Western Hemisphere it would be Mexico, and the, yeah the right there but is I mean of Western
1: developed nations, I'm sorry
2: uh, then it's uh Western developed nations is a is a very interesting category because that's not a category that's delimited by any set criteria. So if you're comparing us to Western Europe and Canada, then this is completely true. The moment you throw in other OECD countries, it's actually complicated by Russia, which has um, about double the murder rate of the United States. But it's not handgun murders. I mean, it's knivings for the most part. Right. Um, uh, the there's a lot of narratives about about gun control that I uh, totally. I lived in South Korea for years, and it has almost absolute gun control, and it totally works there, and I felt super safe, and I could drop my iPhone on the floor, and it'd be fine. But I do worry about the idea that it's going to be simple in North America because of the level of gun penetration. It's so bad that it affects all the countries around us, too, many of which have as strict or stricter gun laws in Great Britain. So. I mean, it's. We're not just screwing up our country with this. We're screwing up most of Central America with this. Yes, right, right. Um, I would, I would also say that uh, the other thing that Europe has going for it is a welfare state. Yes, Um, as as much as it's declining, no less Um, desperate people. Exactly. Right. And so, I mean, I. I would, I would include gun control, you know, in my ideal world, gun control is part of a sweeping series of reforms just to make us look like anemic social democracy in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, uh, so when I say these things, I'm not saying this as an opponent of gun control. I am saying it, though, as an opponent of simple shit like banning AR-15s, Um Uh and which I'm I'm not opposed to, but I don't think it's actually going to change that much. Nor nor am I uh I I actually other than a other than an outright handgun ban, which I literally can't imagine being allowed by the courts in this country, much less popular opinion. Um I don't know what would have an effect on all these smaller level school shootings that make up 120 something you're talking about. Because most of those are handguns, most of those are not AR 15 mass shootings. Um, right. Uh, and so I get very frustrated sometimes with, frankly, democratic policies. I mean, for example, the assault weapons ban in the United States has almost no effect on the murder rate.
3: Um, right. Well, I mean the, the biggest, you know, impact on most gun control generally has little to do with murder. It it, it, it leans a lot more in terms of like preventing um suicide, right. if I'm correct. You know, that's the biggest cause of gun yeah. violence. Yeah. Um, yeah is is suicide so any kind of gun control is less about murder more about impacting suicide yeah, rates right. would be
2: impacting suicide than uh spontaneous um in family murders would be the next mm. thing it would have a big impact on um right it may have an impact on organized violent crime in the united states but that's harder to say um i would more rely on social programs for that um right but you know, I, I, here I am sounding like a robot. Let's talk about the kid. Um
1: Yeah, and let's talk about the emotional impact because this, this is not what we, you've been talking about very well is the what's happening in the schools. The emotional impact on children and te- teachers is also really important.
3: Like, well, what, you know, as a teacher, like, have you seen changes? And again, like, it's kind of hard because you print states, but like, have you seen how these policies kind of impact children and and their, you know, relationship to school, to each other and, and general, like, you know, approach to society?
2: Um, anecdotally, and I always, as a scientific minded person, will warn people about anecdotes, right? But mm-hmm. anecdotally... I have had more students attempt suicide or be hospitalized for suicidal ideation every year.
1: Mm-hmm. The last
2: two the last two years have been obscene. Mm-hmm. So the first three years that I taught, uh, I dealt with a lot of weird shit. I had a student have a heart attack in my classroom. I had a student. Uh, I had a lot of students want to treat medical problems that we couldn't diagnose because it would make the school liable for it. So we just had to deal with it up to it, including something that led to a a former student eventually dying from complications of untreated and undiagnosed uh, epilepsy. Um, You know, I saw a lot of weird shit. Uh, I I taught in 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 uh, poor areas for the most part, for most, you know. Uh, and I could talk about that because I also taught some of the richest people in the world and it, it, it puts things in perspective. But um, uh, the amount of suicidal ideation has been on a steady increase. It's particularly bad in the West, actually, in the Mountain West in particular. We don't really know why, although some of that's probably local culture. There are other things like the over-reliance on SSRIs and the fact that they're even less effective at high altitudes and stuff like that. Um uh I am also slightly distrustful of over-medicalization of some of the issues anyway. Good. Um so you know, uh uh but one thing that we that we have seen is a steady increase of students um, being hospitalized for suicidal ideation. And what one thing that I did not expect before COVID, but has definitely happened since COVID, is that this has been politicized. So while you hear about the war on CRT, uh, critical race theory, um, uh, which while liberals to say it was never taught in schools are not strictly speaking telling the truth um it has been part of teacher trainings um although it has never called that uh and i have strong criticisms of its employ in teacher trainings um the way that it has been weaponized by conservatives now has been basically to um make any kind of equity programs almost impossible in red states um uh the the other thing though that 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 has been uh culture warized and uh began as a backdoor war on queer issues in the classroom basically was social and emotional learning sel or social emotional learning has some drawbacks i can go into but it's its main goal is not to normalize homosexuality because it's already legal and fairly normative anyway in most urban areas um but it is to um stem the suicide rate that's what it's aimed to do right now does it work I, the metadata doesn't indicate that it's working because things are continuing to getting worse but it 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 it, uh, it is its aim. It's, its aim, most people who push it, a lot of people who push it, um, I, I know a lot of moderate conservative teachers, because they teach in Utah, who feel very betrayed now because this is something they were very big on because they were concerned about the rash of student uh, self-harm. And that had been increasing before COVID. We had a break for a year during COVID. And I have a theory about why we had a break, right? um, And then we saw a massive increase once students were back in school. Mm. My theory about why we had a break is nobody was reporting it during the heart, during the- Yeah, that makes sense. Like, so, so, yeah. Um, So conservatives who talk about the, effects of the lockdown on students they're not wrong all right but this trend began before that and um there is that another thing that's happened is social norms have changed significantly among students and for the better um we still had issues with anti-gay bullying and stuff when i when i was teaching i don't have issues with that anymore Good. i just don't like um the reason why, I don't think it's anything that teachers did. I don't think it's anti-bullying programs particularly. I actually think it's probably the cost of cyberbullying on the Internet, making people very aware of how dangerous bullying is. Um, and so it's, it's, it is slightly more regulated by teenagers themselves. Um, I think that's a net good. It is, because
1: um, all the mass shooters were bullied.
2: Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying bullying disappeared, but it has it has declined. Um uh do you think it's kind of
3: like you know declined as a diffuse thing but gotten more concentrated in some ways or do you think it
2: you know I think cyberbullying makes it worse anyway because it doesn't cut off and so when it happens <laughs> right. it's more intense so i don't think it's actually right. like i think in in a in a way it is more diffuse when it happens it is far more it is probably Far worse, um, right? But I will also—it's so more
3: targeted and concentrated, but it's happening less overall,
2: right? It, that would be okay. that would be my anecdotal observation. Um, okay, uh, schools take it more seriously now too. I will say that. Um, also, like I said, there's been a turn against standardized testing in both conservative mm. and liberal states, but how it is manifested because both sides want to play a culture war issue with it is 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 uh quite different so uh conservatives attack it in blue states because it's sold as wokeness um and and stuff like you know making math woke um (laughs) liberals liberals you know uh liberals attack the parent choice stuff because it um and they're not wrong about this actually put Puts impoverished groups and marginalized groups at more of a disadvantage um, uh, because parents, not even because parents necessarily have bad, in, uh, bad intentions towards their kids, or, or even necessarily super intolerant of their kids' lifestyle choices, they don't have the resources. Right. And 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 COVID really made that obvious. Mm. Um. So, but it was. I mean, it's been obvious to me the entire time it taught. So, like. Um, so, in that sense, you know, it, it's quite interesting why that's happening, but testing fatigue um, is very real. And also the, the, the state schools uh, and I know this is I mean, people who work in healthcare probably understand this too. they're, they're trying to juke their numbers. They are. Right. So getting rid of the tests make it easier to juke the numbers. The easiest number to juke is is graduation and, and teacher grades. Grade inflation has been rampant. Now, I'm kind of against grading in general, but if you're going, teachers think that grade inflation, and I have talked to teachers about this, helps disadvantaged students. It doesn't at all. Because what we start relying for for disadvantaged students to get uh, certain uh, post-secondary options, work trainings, etc. cetera, become social capital, which still favors the well-off. And unfortunately, this is pretty well documented with what's happening in colleges. So we haven't, outside of, of very few elite colleges, we're not seeing a whole lot more poor people going into colleges without the test. What's happening now is no one can tell a child how they can even get into a university. The other thing that's happening, and this is actually what bothers me because, you know, if I had my way, the university system would be imploded and rebuilt from scratch, but that's a, that's a kind of a different conversation. But, um, but the other thing that's happening right now is that it's very hard for students to even have any idea how they're being adjudicated because no one in the system really knows. Uh, and and what we see at universities, for example, is an increase of people of color, an increase of, uh, of very far down in, so extreme poverty scholarships, et cetera, at elite private universities. But that uh, the people of color uh that uh, particular uh go to these schools that are more likely to be, frankly, immigrants and not poor immigrants. Right. Um and uh people from uh the you know, so the average black student in a university is actually richer than the average white student, which is itself proof of systemic racism because it's taking more for the to get in. But it's leading to this very uh Misleading picture that somehow that the that like a bunch of disadvantaged populations are getting into universities at large numbers. There are a lot of them. There are a lot more uh, first generation college students going to uh, community college right. uh, and, and whatnot. Yeah, but they're often not completing school, and and so what's happening at the community colleges and at the universities as well um, is that. During this time period of increased graduation rates and increased uh, GPAs, remediation has like tripled. So, what we're effectively doing for lower middle class students is making them pay for the education that used to be paid for by the by the taxpayer privately, right? Um, through through loans to community colleges in remediation. So right. wow.
3: Yeah, that's that's been a that's one of the things that I've really noticed. Yeah. Last time I was in 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 school at a, last time I was at a community college, you know, which was about five years ago. Also, race and class are often confused in the United States. So by addressing race only,
1: you people may assume that people of color are from a, a different economic class, but they're not.
2: Exactly. Um, the the poor in this in this situation are still pretty rightly screwed, mm-hmm. and um, in some ways they're even worse off. One um, telling stat, for example, is uh, and this was sold as progressive, which which made me laugh. But Biden's plan, which I don't think he's going to do now, actually for reasons I can get into, is to, to just use his executive power, which he almost certainly has, to forgive $10,000 worth of loans mm-hmm. is that a whole lot of students who were in community college who didn't complete anything above an associate's degree or didn't complete anything at all would have their debt discharged with just 10K. But that also indicates, if anyone knows the cost of college, and that a whole lot of people aren't finishing. And that also shows up in the relative stats. Uh, people under 35 right now, you are uh, only 40% likely to have uh, um, a, a bachelor's level post-secondary uh, education, but you are um, 60% likely to have spent some time in a college or university. It means 20% of those people are just falling off right. um, with fair amounts of debt. So that's one of the trends too. Kids know this. They, they're they're well aware because they're not stupid they know what's happening it's uh they also know for example that they can't get a job off of secondary vocational training like you like you know you go if you take a subspecialization in an auto shop even in a, a high school that has a good relationship with the local business community which that itself should be worrying but even if that's true um it does not get you past any of the auto shop training. It doesn't indicate that you will be more likely to get the job. Even it, it just kind of doesn't matter. Um, vocational training at the secondary level is more or less universally considered a joke.
3: When did that shift happen? You know, because I, I I read 1990s. Yeah. Though uh, that was, that was going to be my guess.
2: The mid 1990s. um,
3: because, I mean, one of the issues also with, like, you know, second like, kind of secondary mm-hmm. vocational education in the United States is, is how much they're kind of oversold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, in terms of, like, you know, it's one of those things where, like, I went into my, you know, substance use disorder counseling program knowing that this was a low-wage industry. But, mm-hmm. you know, this was something that, i thought was a really important um area of work but it was it was kind of discouraging or like depressing that it was like you know kind of sold as like you can you know make a profitable career out of this you right. know what when there's like no real profitable career. career outside of like administration to be made in social services yeah. in general.
2: That's true for also a lot of uh, the blue collar trades that people sell. Um, so, for example, the whole micro conservative thing that. You would hear um, about the trades declining, and it's true, the trades have declining, and it's true that. And certain trades like plumbing, relative wage and compensation is kind of high. Welding's another one. What um, they're not telling you, though, is that your career here in those fields tends to be shorter, um, and it's highly, highly business cycle tied into. So uh, when the economy goes down, you first need your job. Right. Um, more over. The idea of pushing those programs, just like the idea of pushing STEM, uh, people who have studied this actually it indicates that it's a knowing policy to suppress wage growth by encouraging people to overapply. Yeah,
1: you know, I wanted to ask about an area that does seem statistically to be growing and requiring some vocational training, which is the whole lower level med techs. Mm-hmm. X-ray techs, phlebotomists—you know the whole low-paid or lower-paid aspects of medicine where you need to be trained. Does that fit the same pattern or not?
2: Um, There, the actual shortages we've had that I've looked at is is medical technology. That's a real shortage. Um, I mean, now uh, post COVID, we have shortages everywhere. But again. We've, we, we, the people being shopping. this actually sort of confuses me, but, but before COVID, we had a shortage in, in med tech stuff because it's, it's not often pushed. Uh, we have a shortage and um, there was, you know, there's the eternal nursing shortage that's existed the entire time I've been alive, mm-hmm. um, right. um, which I know plenty of people go into nursing. So that, that's, you know, <laughs> Uh, it, the, the shortage is not because of a lack of people who uh, don't see it as a way to get into a middle class existence. Um, the other thing is coding, actually, but coding increasingly is Uh By that, is that it, there's a lot of certifications, but no one really needs you to have a bachelor's in computer science anymore. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I kind of think if you see things being decredentialized, there actually is a shortage in it. And uh, if it's not decredentialized, it's not, with the exception of teachers. And I am beginning to wonder, and we've seen a lot of backdoor decredentialization, actually. What are you referring
1: to particularly?
2: Well, alternative licensure programs, which almost every state has. Mm -hmm. So you still have to have a, a BA, but you don't even have to have anything necessarily in related to what you're teaching and you will be able to uh get a license uh with usually about three years now you'll notice it takes three years on notice what i said about teachers. yeah they
1: generally leave um,
2: they generally leave you'll also notice um that in a lot of states that have decent teacher benefits it takes four years to be vested so the state's saving money on you and because of teachers or licensure scheduled. And because it, it, and I, am a union rep, so don't think this is me talking shit about teachers unions. But this is true. Uh, alternative certified teachers are often not treated well by the unions. Cause they're seen as a, a kind of, um, scabbing on credential teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because of that, um, uh, they don't join the union, and so they don't grow with the union. And and uh, that, that means that you can get around a whole lot of staffing issues as a district. You kind of want to get around by having a lot of these alternative certified teachers. Now, districts still, however, mostly don't do that. But the public charters, that's almost entirely that's their right. worker base.
1: It is.
3: Right. Yeah.
1: Which is one of the reasons I think that they do less well. Because they're mainly people who don't intend to stay and don't see it as a career, but as an interim job. I know that that's so from clients I have who have taught at the success academies, where Eva Moskowitz makes more than a million dollars and they make truly substandard wages, that mostly they're college graduates from various prestigious or at least expensive. Universities that feel they're doing good for the poor for a couple of years and have no interest in that career.
2: Yeah, you saw that also with Teach for America, which was basically yes. the Peace Corps yeah. for very internally. much for that. That's right,
1: um, very much
2: for that. So, so it's a way to save money. To yeah, save money. Um, and to
1: cheat students out of trained yep. personnel with a commitment to them and to the field.
2: Yep. Um, uh, the Bill Gates Foundation has a lot to answer for for encouraging this shit twenty years ago. Yep. But um, regardless, so so what are we seeing now? Well, the number one meta-analysis study, and this is funny. I finally schools are finally admitting this with administration. So I guess maybe things are getting better on this front. Um, is it teacher relationships? Um, not. Not friend relationships, and unfortunately, a lot of young teachers don't understand that this relationship is not a friend relationship, but teacher relationships is the number one predictor, uh, along with quality direct instruction delivered in a way that's, uh, that students can understand. I don't mean memorization by that, uh, are the two biggest things that anyone has any control over for student success. All right. And if you have a transient teacher base who has, so I've had on my rosters up to 320 students at a time as a high school teacher, God, there is no way to establish those relationships. That's my pushback on all the people who, who talk about, well, there's no real efficacy to smaller class sizes. There isn't that much of an FSC on, on test scores uh, done in the same year of test. But there is a large bit of metadata that indicates that the teacher relationship is super important and that you're diluting that yeah. with massive class sizes. Right. Um, now, teacher relationships, it's not like there's I can't tell you, for example, anything that's going to make a teacher have a good relationship with all students there's just there's not actually one thing to do that and that's part of why i think this is uh was under discussed it's been known about for about a for oh, i mean it's been common sense forever yep and it's been statistically proven for about 10 years so <laughs> um you know it, it, it's uh and and teacher training and gimmicks that you got at charter schools and the consumer model of education i was talking about none of them address this. And and in fact, if anything, and particularly when you talk about online education and what I was getting to earlier um, and establishing the relationships, it's harder. Mm
1: -hmm. It's
2: harder to do. So, you know, what, you know, like for me, I, like I said, I work at a, a public school that has an online program that was created for students who want anyone who wanted to opt in, particularly for students who did not feel going Going back to school is safe during COVID because of whatever reason. Um, Most of them have to do with health vulnerabilities in their family. Um, uh, And I spend a lot of time on the phone calling kids' houses to establish a relationship with them. Like, that's a lot of what I have to do. It is not any less amount of time to do so what you've seen is during COVID, this was not attempted by a lot of schools because, frankly, what they were asking teachers to do in a, a lot, lot of more time. Say, yeah, yeah. Well, red for state. No pay. Well, it, yeah, and red states are asking pe- people to do this for the last two years mm-hmm. uh, in most districts. On top of being in the classroom with more traumatized kids than ever, um, with with fairly high class loads, and to do just. I guess, post all their stuff online and post their lectures online, which won't pass, and call that online education. Or what they were doing was trying to replicate an in-person classroom with Zoom calls, which you can't really do. No. Um, uh, What is
1: interesting here is that the private schools have not had plummeting accomplishment of their students because no. they do have small classes and they, during the pandemic, I have a couple of clients who are private school teachers. They had groups of two or three and they had home visits and so on. So that what you do is you have a greater and greater separation between the haves and have nots in terms of their possibilities and their futures. Right.
2: That's, that's totally true. And it's totally true within public schools too. And one of the things I want to talk about that's that started changing right before COVID was the return of magnet academies in place in in blue cities, uh, and this these are huge in California.
3: Yeah, California is full of that. Mag- My former high school was turned into a magnet. School.
2: Right, and and like New York has been operating on this principle for a long time too. Um, in fact, uh, this is one of the ironies of the Civil Rights Act. The Civil Rights Act doesn't apply to non-Confederate states. It just doesn't. You know, that? like the the special compliance terms of like racial demographics and the ability to like sort schools by race and stuff only was in strict scrutiny in Confederate states. So the Confederate states, the southern states couldn't track schools or whatever in ways that were racially divisive. But New York has highly segregated schools. The most segregated,
1: they say New York City is some of the the most segregated schools
2: in the United States. Absolutely, because they use these magnet programs. So you basically have public schools that are acting like private schools, and they're sorting. But in California, they got smart. And you've seen this in a lot of the blue cities. They started, they, they removed formal tracking. Now, tracking students are not tracking students. I have philosophically opposed to tracking students, but I know that it just doesn't have much of an effect one way or the other on their on their objective learning success. Um, uh, I think it's just a bad, I, I personally think that it's a bad lesson to send the students that we're, we're sorting you in types that you, and you're going to make a decision about the trajectory of all your career future by the time you're 12. But um, I can say that The the evidence is that it just doesn't have an effect one way or the other, as far as the learning outcomes. I think the psychological outcomes may still be worth Mm -hmm. on tracking though. However, so there was all these voluntary IB and AP, so that's International Baccalaureate Advanced Placement Academy set up uh, and gifted programs set up in in schools. And what what schools learned is they didn't even have to uh, track for these that you could just rely on the wealthy parents to advocate for kids and then the poor parents won't. And so, and so what we're, what we're actually seeing in a lot of states like California is what like elite schools within schools, there's still yeah. faith in the rich.
1: Yes. Well, also what you see, at least in New York about which I know more than other states is that you have schools with wealthy parents who donate about, well, several thousand dollars. It's still cheaper than private school and therefore have special programs, chess clubs, school orchestra, all sorts of after-school activities and dance and so on. And, they make sure that those activities are available for their children and not necessarily for other children. And those are magnet schools that attract wealthy parents who donate so much that their schools operate more like private schools with specialized opportunities. And that way they save money and also get around the limits of public funding. So if you have to go to a poor a school in a poor neighborhood and you don't, I have a client who takes her kids an hour and a half every day to their school in a because it's a wealthy school so that they can have a good education. But most parents won't do that. So you have another class divide.
2: So extracurriculars in and public schools in a lot of red states are not funded. And while there are progressive laws that Supposedly help with this. I'll talk about how pernicious some of these progressive court rulings actually are. And I, progressives here should be in quotation marks. Um, uh, what what generally happens is in most of these sports and extracurricular activities, the there are packet costs. So if a, if a, if your daughter wants to be a cheerleader or whatever, um, the packet. Of all the materials that they need that the school doesn't have taxpayer money to provide um, is uh, several thousand dollars. Mm -hmm. Um, That's true for like football as well. Um, Now, kids who get free and reduced lunch in most states will still have access to this, but this is a pernicious ruling. So, for example, in Utah, and it's probably not as bad in every state, but in Utah, Uh, The fee structure has to be posted a year in ahead, regardless of things like inflation, which is wreaking havoc right now. Um, And you cannot raise the fees on any student to cover the poor student, nor is it funded by state money. It has to be funded by school money. Um, Yeah. uh, So what happens to a lot of these schools is even though they technically. uh, If you have a high percentage of poor kids even though you technically have to allow access for them to participate at for free, since it's not funded and the schools don't have the money to fund it, um, it the, those extracurriculars are just removed. Um, with the exception of things that, uh, that occasionally, like local businesses or something, will really care about and support, like uh, 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 after-school sports, which will be subsidized by local business donations but like that, and you see that across the board. So, so you have this really pernicious system where even if you are going to public schools, there, it's, it, it's classed both between schools, not just because most States, ironically, Utah is not one of them for reasons that I'll go that, that are kind of funny, but most States, uh, property, local property tax funds the local school. So they're always going to favor inflated housing. Um, right. And this creates a feedback loop too, uh, which makes the test scores more like the test scores more of a property, property value orange race than actually anything involving student learning. Uh, but the other thing that even when you correct for that, uh, Utah uh, has so many Super rural, super tiny, like 100 person districts that they still have to legally provide schools for, that they actually do equalize their property tax money between the entire state, not just uh, individual counties. Um, you still have all these other funding streams right. and obligations that favor the rich. So even when you do correct for that terrible structure, which most of the country mm. is under. Um, doesn't really fix it. No, cuz
1: the after school programs cost money.
2: Right? And the the VAP programs effectively cost money to be competitive. And then even things that people are sold as ways out, say sports has always been sold as a way for impoverished kids to get out of their situation and also to not be on the street or whatever. That's what was one of the, the justifications for the United States incorporating school sports at the secondary level which i i don't know if people know it's not super common elsewhere in the world right. um, worked in a bunch of other countries can speak it's not um uh, it's not unheard of but but it's it's not the primary means of after of like student i mean of uh say teenage sport right. activity um uh what 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 happens with that now is um, you need private clubs to be competitive, even to get into the high school teams. Right. And these private clubs are super duper expensive. So so now even those mechanisms are no longer really a good way for most impoverished right. students to get out because the competition has gotten so absurd that it's been reprivatized. Um,
3: right. Well, there's also like a huge doping issue. You know, even at that level, like, yeah, you know, in terms of basketball, I just remember overhearing a couple of parents uh, at a local um Trader Joe's just discussing. And I could tell that they were discussing human growth hormones for their kids yeah. that were playing basketball. I'm
1: sorry, I have to go now because I have another commitment, but this is fascinating and I will listen to all the rest of it, even though I can't participate any further thank you thank
0: you
3: thank you harriet bye
0: if you have enjoyed the podcast so far well this conversation goes on for another 90 minutes and it's only available to patrons so if you'd like to listen further please head over to patreon.com forward slash it's not just in your head and you can join up for as little as three dollars a month Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Sheena Belmas, Alexander Lashley, Jennifer Cox, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, and Bruce Rogers Fawn. If you have enjoyed
2: anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head.
0: And you can hear more from Harriet on her radio show called Interpersonal Update. It's on WBAI at 2.30 EST on Wednesday afternoons and in the WBAI archives.